Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian here at RAF Fairford, uh, annual home of the Royal International Air Tattoo, one of the world's leading gatherings of air power leaders as well as aircraft from around the world. Our coverage here is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, and we're honored to have with us uh, the right honorable uh, member of uh, parliament, Philip Dunn, uh, who was the former uh, Minister for Defense uh, Procurement. Uh, Philip, very good to see you again. Great to see you again, Vargo. It's been a little while. Uh, it, it has been. Uh, and uh, so you've uh, produced, uh, at the request of uh, Defense Secretary Gavin Williamson, uh, a 100-page report, 99-page report, um, that looks at the defense industrial contribution uh, uh, or the defense industry's contribution to the British economy. Um, in the 2015 Strategic uh, Defense and Security Review, uh, when you were in government, um, the, there was a focus on the prosperity agenda and how important the aerospace and defense sector was to, to the British economy. Talk to us a little bit about what you were trying to achieve, or rather what the Defense Secretary wanted you to achieve in this in this report. Well, thank you, Vargo. So, I, as you say, I was the Procurement Minister and was heavily involved in the Strategic Defense Review in 2015. And, and as part of that review, the Minister of Defense took on a responsibility as, as a strategic objective to contribute to UK prosperity. So what the Defence Secretary asked me to do uh, a few months ago was to take a holistic look, not just at the defence industry, but at the MOD and the armed forces as well as the defence industry in the UK, and to see whether we could uh, quantify what the contribution to UK prosperity was, and if we couldn't, then what could we do to ensure that the MOD was doing its bit to fulfil that strategic objective of contributing to the UK economy. And I think the, the headline thing to say to start with is that in the UK we don't actually capture defence statistics as well as we should. Um, so the thing that I could point out, which I don't think had been done uh, before, was that there are now half a million people in the UK engaged in the whole defence enterprise, both directly and indirectly. That's one in 65 people, uh, adults in employment, are engaged either in the armed forces or in supporting the armed forces one way or another. Uh, and that's, that shows a very significant contribution uh, in terms of the uh, number of people employed as part of the economy. Um, but what we weren't able to do, and what one of the things I call for, is to really analyse what is the economic contribution. So what I looked at is the extent to which the, the MOD, through its um, internal processes, could embed prosperity into decision-making in a way that it has paid somewhat lip service to up to now. And I've made a whole slew of, of recommendations about that. So um, you have 41 recommendations in this 100-page report. Talk to us about some of the key ones um, that you think are, 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 are important to achieve and why they're important. So I'm looking at embedding uh, prosperity into decision-making. I'm looking at making uh, more agile the whole procurement process in order to cope with the rapidly evolving threats. Many of the systems that the MOD uses at the moment take, some, in some cases, years to make decisions and then obviously many years to to fulfill capability and get it into the front line. And that's just not good enough going forward, uh, in particular given the threats change so quickly now. So looking also, at, and the third area, is how industry can, uh, can help provide new capability 
existing defence industry, both domestic and international, but also, and critically, new industries that we haven't typically uh, seen as defence contractors before, whether in the uh, infotech world, in the fintech world, and a new emerging category of miltech, uh, which is evolving in the UK as it is in other countries. Um, do, when you, um, the, part of this is to help um, the secretary and Gitobeb come up with a new, uh, the, the acting or serving uh, minister for defense procurement, to come up with a new UK defense industrial strategy. Um, I've covered this now, the UK defense, for more than 25 years. And the notion of industrial strategy and industrial policy comes in and goes out. Lord Grayson, uh, uh, Lord Drayson was um, one of the most forceful in actually trying to craft um, an industrial strategy. And at the, at the time, the accusation was, well, the horse has already left the barn. And, and talk to us about what an industrial strategy would have to look like. You've sat in that chair. Um, you've been a member of parliament for some time, so you're also keenly aware of the political challenges. Um, walk us through what an industrial strategy would look like for a country like the United Kingdom that's integrated in the global economy, has made some specific national decisions that, look, we're not going to do whole system, but we're going to be very good at component parts. What does this strategy need to look like, especially in a world where it looks like trade tensions and trade wars may, may be the future norm rather than the exception? Well, we've, we do have... Uh elements of an industrial strategy. I actually launched the national shipbuilding strategy when I was in post and that uh, reported last year and we do generate whole systems as a result of that. We've just indeed won an export order to Australia for the design for the Type 26 global combat ship which is an entire system being built in this country. And it was a huge and, and it's a huge vindication to that strategy because the ship is the product of the strategy and the alternating 2631E um, concept which you, which you did develop. In, indeed. So I think we can see more sort of, uh, sector-specific strategies f coming together to form a defence industrial strategy. We'll have to see whether that's something that the department wants to pursue or not. But you're right to point to increasing tr uh, tensions around the world in relation to trade. We've obviously got a big event coming up next year in the form of Brexit and does that provide opportunities for us to do things slightly differently? One of the recommendations in my report is that we should use the opportunity of Brexit to look at our procurement rules. At the moment we're subject to EU competition rules for non-warlike stores uh, and you know, my question is, well, is it, does that apply post 29th March 2019? And, and if it doesn't apply, and it'll be part of the negotiation, so we're not 100% sure yet, then we have an opportunity to craft some of those rules slightly differently. And in that context, I think we need to look at uh, having the flexibility in our decision-making to allow procurements to take into account the impact on the UK economy of some of the procurements we make. And that can take many forms. I'm not saying that this is necessarily a by-British policy, but I am saying I think we need need to look when we've got major procurements coming up uh, that there is an opportunity to take advantage of uh, support in the UK, UK participation at a tier one level in major collaborations. The UK is very good at collaborating with other nations on major defence projects. We've done it with the United States on, uh, on F-35 where, they, where we're the only tier one partner as you know. We've done it in the major procurements in the air in Typhoon, A400M uh, with European nations uh, and there's no reason why we won't continue to do that post-Brexit but I think we, need, we can more explicitly say when we come to make these decisions uh, there is an element of this which is, can be weighted towards uh, contribution to the UK economy. Um, do you think, though, that the, the UK, France has been well, willing to bear 
uh, a, an, a constant financial burden in order to be able to preserve its own means of production for high-end items. So, you know, you're absolutely right in that um, the UK has maintained shipbuilding capability and that, that is the product of specific decisions and also national custom, right? Warship hulls um, have to be built in the United Kingdom among the many gun barrels, as I recall, as well. Um, you know, whereas, whereas France is actually carries that cost all the time, whereas the UK has shot for maximum capability for the investment, moving everything to the high end, the conversation that you and I have had over the years, to, to get to that highest degree of capability, to be on an equal footing, albeit a smaller partner, but an equally valuable partner for the United States and, and also a key alliance capability. As, as you look at that, is there a willingness among members of parliament, and particularly, you know, as, as a friend of mine put it, the dead hand of the Treasury, no offense to anybody in the Treasury, of course, uh, that, you know, looks at sometimes things the department wants to do that are perfectly logical and says, well, look, it'll cost, you know, pennies on the pound, but we don't want to do that. So, you know, d does there need to be sort of a seed shift and that the defense secretary and informed members like you making the broader case why it may be worth carrying a cost to have long-term sovereignty flexibility. I think the jury is out on what is the cost of of domestic capability and in fact one of my recommendations is that we should do some academic study to see whether there or not there is a, a prosperity premium if you like for maintaining capability in the UK in some areas uh, if you compare the cost of capability manufactured in the UK against in other countries in fact we come out ahead um, but in many other areas where we have a, a shorter production run we can't take advantage of the economies of scale that the US can some of its capability so I think it's horses for courses we've got some particularly in the technology space some world-class world-leading capability in this country and we need to nurture that by uh, ensuring that there is uh, investment by the MOD into some of this uh, material and we will find that as uh, lead times for developing capability short compress uh, there is an opportunity I think for us to be able to uh, invest in the new tools of the trade for the future which will help stimulate uh, in industrial capability and whether it's in the knowledge economy or wherever it is to uh, to develop and evolve in the UK and then spill over into civilian applications we see you know, historically there's been a lot of that development and the UK has been quite good at innovating capability we've not always been as good as exploiting that uh, across the civilian space and I think we need to get better at that and I think there is therefore a big case to be made that d investing in defense contributes significantly more than it might at first appear to the UK economy and we need to make that case across government. Um, UK spends 2% of GDP. There is a concern that after Brexit uh, that that defense spending number may drop uh, because of economic contraction. There are others however who are making a very very big push uh, like Gavin Williamson and his allies to push for even 3%. You know, push that boundary up saying the UK military is a global force, says Atrophied. It's not just a European force, but it's a global nation with, um, that's always had global interests. Uh, and there was a letter from prominent uh, former chiefs of staff uh, that wrote and argued for that, George Zambellis being among them, the former first sea lord. Um, Jim Mattis, the US Defense Secretary, wrote a letter to Gavin Williamson sort of saying like, look, unless you increase defense spending, then Britain would lose its special status in Washington and be replaced by the French. There are those who say that that's actually a bad message to send to London given the importance of the special relationship and a particular sensitivity to, to Paris being seen as closer to Washington. Asking you, was, was a letter like that, could, could that potentially backfire? 
by an American defense secretary sending a letter like that, given that the U.S.-U.K. strategic defense relationship is on nuclear, is on intelligence, and is so intimate that a changing of horses is, is something that, you know, I, I just want to get your sense as, as a sure. defense-minded MP, so you know, how my, that message my went over. Is that the, the strength and depth of the UK-US transatlantic relationship in defense and security is unparalleled with any other nation and goes far broader and, uh, and wider, deeper uh, than with the UK from a US perspective, as I understand it, than any other. And it would take a very considerable amount of time and energy and effort to, uh, to replicate that with another nation. Now, not, it's not saying that the US isn't developing its relationships all around the world uh, and will, will need to do so as the world shrinks in terms of the threats becoming more uh, uh, capable uh, of, inter of interfering with everyday life all around the world much more easily. So it's really important that, uh, from a UK perspective, that the US recognises uh, the benefits that it gets from its relationship with the UK, uh, and we need to make that case. I believe in f at the dinner last night, which the President had with uh, the Prime Minister, uh, there were some uh, favourable comments made uh, about the, the nature of the relationship. So I wouldn't get terribly caught up in a, uh, is it the UK or France kind of argument. I don't really believe that that's credible. But as to your point as to money, um, I think there is uh, no doubt that there is significant pressure on European members of NATO to increase their spending. We are one of the five nations, the US being another, which meets the 2% uh, requirement. I understand it may come up to 8 uh, later this year, uh, and there is pressure on those that are not there to do so. And uh, whether the UK is in a position to do that or not um, is, is really a matter for the Treasury and the, and the government of the day. We are on a trajectory to increase in real terms our spending. Um, whether that increases faster than the growth in GDP remains to be seen, but there's still certainly a case to be made, and I think the Defence Secretary is making it vigorously across government at the moment, that, uh, that there is a requirement to raise capability levels uh, to ensure that we can meet a full spectrum of threats and continue to play uh, a global role and not just a defence of the homeland role. Uh, and, you know, we are, you, you made some comments about our capabilities, we are you know, on the point of re-establishing uh, the aircraft carrier with its carrier strike capability. Uh, we have increasing ca offensive capabilities in space, which we are one of the few nations prepared to talk about that. Uh, and we have a, a very you know, well-established and effective security infrastructure, which is helping to keep this country safe and countries all around Europe, providing intelligence uh, to which stop terrorist attacks uh, on the mainland of Europe. So I think we, we still have a great deal to offer the United States, a great deal to offer our partners and friends uh, in Europe. And it would be a mistake to, uh, to talk down UK capability too much. Um, and one last question. Do, do, are you concerned at all about um, some of the rhetoric? I mean, I've been talking to folks here uh, about the NATO meeting and some of the statements the president made in terms of pushing too hard on, on allies uh, and, and even the tone of it um, that could actually backfire on the aim of, of, you know, and if nations do spend more money, they may actually choose not to spend it transatlantically, but may actually make to make those decisions and say, okay, if we're going to spend it, we're going to spend it at home. Um, or, or, you know, there are even those who say that the rhetoric is such that it will, will cause the kind of disunity that a Vladimir Putin can take advantage of. You have somebody who's always had been thoughtful in a measured tone. How important is the tone of this discussion, the tone of this debate, and are you concerned that a show of disunity could actually invite Vladimir Putin to test the alliance in a way that everybody would rather he not test it? 
Well, I do think the, the unity of NATO is critically important to be able to demonstrate to those who might want to do us harm that we are united and prepared to act together. And uh, any examples from you know, the most senior levels and from, uh, the, uh, the, from the United States at the top level in, in particular, suggesting that they may have less faith in NATO is very damaging because it does demonstrate to uh, to Russian leader that there's potential uh, disunity at the core of NATO and I think that would be very unfortunate. My sense is that the, at the military level uh, there is very much greater cohesion and we are continuing to cooperate uh, and to undertake more and more exercises together to try to bolster the, the resolve and the uh, deterrent effect uh, along the eastern border in particular and therefore some of the statements that are being made uh, perhaps for either a domestic consumption or to encourage European countries to spend more you know, may have some impact um, but I don't think they're really damaging the, the heart of NATO certainly that's not the impression I'm getting from military leaders and as you know our former chief of defence staff has just become chairman of the military committee in NATO uh, and is well placed to make Make those arguments. He's a great believer in the strength of NATO standing together. And that's Air Chief Marshal uh, Sir Stu Peach. And, and one question, what, so what's next, right? You finished this report, it's taken you two months, you've given the recommendations in. Is there sort of a set schedule about what an output or what the next steps are? Well, I'm about to find out. I'm due to meet the Secretary of State on Monday to see how he intends to respond to this uh, and, and whether or not there's a role for me thereafter. I'm hoping that there will be a sort of formal MOD response in one way or another and that I will then be invited and I've said I'd be willing to look again in six or nine months uh, to mark the homework to see how they've got on in responding to these recommendations. Um, sir, thanks very much. Philip Dunn, Member of Parliament, former Minister for Defence Procurement, Philip, thanks very much. Thanks it's always a pleasure. Good to talk to you.